Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am doing okay. It is summer is here, uh, both in terms of the weather and also the kids' school is wrapping up. Fortunately, I feel very grateful to our current school. They had a fifth grade celebration. So at the school she goes to, fifth grade is the end of what they call lower school or elementary school and going to middle school next year. And thank goodness there's no fifth grade graduation because I'm telling you, the graduation thing is out of control. I was trying to arrange dinner with a friend. He's like, oh, sorry, my daughter is preschool graduation. I'm like, what? 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 Like, it is out of control. You don't understand this. You don't have kids. One day you will see the graduation scourge is a real problem. And I would just like to salute my daughter's school. A celebration is fine. A celebration is okay. You have one graduation, and that's when you graduate from high school. Mm. It was funny when you were mentioning this. At, you didn't mention your daughter until right then. I just heard her, and I was like, is this a her reference, or are we talking about something else? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not a her reference. But on that point, given that summer is nearly here, we usually take a bit of a recess over the summer. We're not taking a recess yet. We are recording today. We are going to be off next week as I'll be traveling, but then we will be recording the week after that, and then we'll probably be a bit dark for the summer. But Indeed. You know, just want to give people a chance to really hold on to these last two episodes. So there you go. And we want to thank WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent for this season. Whether you'd like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish to take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site. And when are they available, James? 24 by 7. I think that's a thing now. Yeah, we should have a celebration, I think, about that. And maybe next week, we'll see if you graduate. Plans start at just $4 per month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of your plan. So go to wordpress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's wordpress.com slash exponent. Our thanks to WordPress for sponsoring Exponent. Indeed. So this week, I felt a little bit sheepish. I'm like, I'm kind of in a rut here on this platforms versus aggregators thing. But in this case, there was definitely an aspect of building off of our podcast last week. In that, in that podcast, I brought up that Bill Gates line that I mentioned from that anecdote from Shmoth Pataya. And since I actually quoted it, I'm going to read it here. And what he said was, he talked about, you know, he was in charge of the Facebook platform and he was very proud of it. And, you know, Microsoft invested and Bill Gates was not very impressed. And I'm going to quote, when that 15 billion raise happened a few months after Facebook platform and Gates said something on the lines of, quote, that's a crock of shit. This isn't a platform. A platform is when the economic value of everybody that uses it exceeds the value of the company that creates it. Then it's a platform. And I kind of wanted to go back and double down on that line, particularly in the context of a couple sort of things that happened this week, which was more antitrust sort of news, particularly a lot of it originated by Yelp versus Google, and then also a group of progressive think tanks putting out a call for Facebook to be split up. And again, not that either of these are going to happen, or maybe the Google one might, who knows. But I was thinking about what they were asking for and what they were hoping for. And in the context of this line and in the sort of the couple months here that we've spent debating this difference, and I think what we talked about last week is very interesting and sort of like, I definitely think there's something there. But as far as like understanding this in a way that I think is broadly applicable, just really honing in on this point, like what is a platform and what is its relation to the value generated outside of the centralized product? Like that's really the single most important thing. Yeah. I mean, my understanding of this since we've been digging into it has evolved tremendously. And this notion that I think the light bulb moment for me was where the platform is much more about 
lifting up and supporting the ecosystem around it. They are facilitating the creation of stuff that they couldn't possibly do. They want to have a strong supply base. Everyone wants a strong demand base in terms of users, but they also want to have a strong supply base, whereas the aggregators take a very different approach. Right, exactly. And this is the line that I used. You took the word that I think is the key word. This is, and I'm going to quote myself, (laughs) sorry. This is ultimately the most important distinction between platforms and aggregators. Platforms are powerful because they facilitate a relationship between third-party suppliers and end users. Aggregators, on the other hand, intermediate and control it. I'm going to avoid saying we talked about this because given the fact we've kind of podcast about this three times in a row, we obviously talked about it. But I feel very strongly it's really important to draw this delineation. And one of the reasons I want to kind of write this again and be super duper clear is because I think this is a critical point in thinking about from a competition standpoint, from these company standpoint, and from a regulatory standpoint, how to think about these. This article is really about why the distinction between aggregators and platforms is meaningful and why it matters. So let's go back again. Last week, we talked a lot about Facebook versus Microsoft. And, you know, the idea of, we're trying to get at the, this idea of sort of internalizing versus externalizing sort of the network effects and things like that. It was a little unclear. And I think this actually makes it a little clear. When you talk about facilitating a relationship between third-party suppliers and end users, it's making very clear that there is a connection that's happening outside of your platform. That connection is happening between the third parties and the end users. And again, the power comes from the facilitation, right? The integration that Microsoft had. We talked about how integration is how you make money in a value chain. The integration they had was they handled the facilitation and they had end users on their platform themselves. And so they could put those two pieces together and be tremendously profitable. Whereas the Facebook difference is they control the end user relationship completely. And here, I think another example to bring in that we talked about a bit last week is Apple. And why is it that the App Store has never produced the sort of wealth and profits in huge companies and major industries on top of it in the way that Microsoft did. And it's because the App Store is a intermediation layer, right? The App Store sits on top of, like, the iPhone is all the trappings of a platform, but that layer sits on top of it between the consumers and it intermediates that relationship. And again, it's not a complete intermediation like Facebook or Google on those lines, or particularly Facebook, but it is a partial one. And I think you can draw a line from that to the sort of lack of big platforms on the relationship. I think that's a great point. There was interesting news during the week that there were a bunch of app developers trying to form a union to try to get Apple to change some of these policies for exactly this reason, because Apple has so much control over the way in which things get charged, like you're limiting the extent to which those suppliers, the developers are able to create the types of businesses that existed under the when the platform era was driven by Microsoft. And again, it's worth keeping in mind the reason that Apple did it was because when the phone got started, the smartphones got started, it was the Wild West and it needed someone to come along and make it so that people felt like they could trust what they were putting on their phone. But there was an extent to which that iron grasp didn't release as much as it could have. And the ecosystem has kind of been hamstrung as a result. Yeah, I'm glad you made that distinction because it's not an either or thing, right? They could make it trusted and you could feel safe downloading apps and all the great things the App Store brought while still enabling all these businesses. And the fact that they don't is 
I think we've talked about one, they were afraid of being usurped in the long run. And then two, I think that's transitioned to the quote unquote services narrative, which really is an important thing for them in their stock price. And like, that's why that 30% is not going anywhere, right? But here's a point to really bring it home. If you are dealing with someone in your sort of value chain that is determined to own the customer relationship, you kind of have two choices. One, you can be the low-cost supplier. You can see this, say, in chips, for example, right? Where TSMC, they just went and Samsung went on scale and investment, and that becomes their moat in a way. In the sort of app store, you know, maybe it's a little harder to see what it is. Or you're just so differentiated that you can break through anyway regardless. But that's a very hard place to sustain. You've seen games, for example, or companies, like, they have a huge hit that comes out, and then they can't sustain it because they can't come up with the next one, right? Because coming up with hits is really, really hard. So that's option one. Option two is you figure out a way to go direct to the customer on your own. And here's what is really interesting with you about the App Store. What is the other company other than Apple that has profited by far the most off of the App Store? I want to figure this out. I don't want you to tell me. I mean, it's Facebook, isn't it? Exactly. It's absolutely Facebook. Facebook has such a massive business and has for many, many years on app install ads. And all those free-to-play games that Apple is making a killing off of, they are all finding their customers on Facebook and using Facebook's targeting and all those sorts of things. So it turns out that Facebook is a huge beneficiary of Apple's sort of control of the customer relationship because Facebook has their own independent relationship with customers. And they're basically selling that to app providers so they can get the customers that they want and need that Apple is not letting them connect with directly. Ben, that's a really, really good point. I I love it when you make points like that. The extent to which the importance of that app is such that if it dropped off the app store, that's probably one of the few apps where it might actually get people to change uh, phone platform. But the other thing... Well, it's not just that. I mean, if Facebook was not there... Apple's app store would be less profitable. Like Facebook is doing a lot to drive Apple's app revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the developers and small businesses wouldn't otherwise be able to find their audience and Facebook lets them do it. The other place this is what you just said reminded me of is Facebook's relationship with Google. Like Google was able to reach out over the open web. And as it became more and more successful with search, it started to think about how it could improve. We talked about Yelp at the start of this. It started to pull in results from Yelp and so on. And then it started to replace results from Yelp with its own results. But it couldn't do that to Facebook because Facebook went off and built a wall garden of data. It was a relationship with the customer that was completely independent from Google. That's exactly right. I think there's a broader point there that really gets at what he started out with, this difference between aggregators and and platforms. An aggregator is, like you think about that graph that I always use where it all kind of funnels down to where an aggregator is, it spreads out on on either side. And it's a choke point. It's not just a choke point, though. I mean, you can see how a choke point drives revenue and gains value, right? That's always the case. You want to own a choke point. It's not just a choke point, though. It's a black hole. Like, it is sucking everything into it. And that's... 
what I'm driving at with Google, like Google with the open web, it wasn't just that Google found all the sites on the open web. It's that the open web fought over themselves to be on Google. Everyone structured their websites, did everything. Like the design of the web in many respects is dictated by the way Google wants websites to be designed because so their web crawler can crawl it more efficiently. And like that's everything. And it's a black hole. <laughs> like, like everyone, but it's like a black hole where the objects being sucked in are doing it of their own volition, right? It's not like they're kicking and screaming. They're running to Google saying, pick us, pick us, pick us. I mean, Yelp was built on SEO, right? That's the whole point of it is that they want to come up in with they're complaining about Google today. They're not complaining about Google surfacing their results first in the organic results. They're complaining that Google's not using organic results to drive their answer boxes because they built their whole business about being really good at organic results, you know? And that's not to criticize that decision. But in the long run, the inherent structure of an aggregator-dominated industry is that that aggregator is just sucking everything in. And once that aggregator faces sort of growth challenges – it's going to start expanding out. It's going to start integrating forwards and backwards in that value chain. And, you know, good luck because it's fighting a black hole is a pretty tough proposition. Well, that's exactly what they do. They keep expanding. I mean, you said they're not pulling things in. People are going by their own volition. In a sense, they are. But in this sense, it's almost like the gravitational pull is the fact they have all the customers there in the first place. And as they suck more and more customers in, the pull becomes stronger and stronger. Your point, though, around how when it reaches, and this is why I laughed, it's like such a, the metaphor is so apt. The extent of the growth of its natural market starts to slow down, whether that's search or whatever. And then it starts looking for the next thing. And because it has all the customers, even if the first version of their product isn't as good, because they have the customers there, they're given so much leeway to continue to iterate. Like the only way to really compete with a black hole is to go build another black hole. And that's almost now how I would frame what Facebook did to Google, like if you were trying to do anything and it was based on SEO like Yelp did, you're in trouble. And then there was another really interesting example this week in the instance of Facebook and the Weather Channel had built a very big audience. The expression that the guy used that was talking about it was they've been paid in all kinds of currencies except for money. And another instance where Facebook is doing it is online dating. Like Tinder built a business on the top of Facebook's social graph, but as Facebook starts to run out of new people to expand to and they're reducing the supply of ad inventory it's driving up prices they're going to start to look for new ways of growth and they'll just go into other businesses where they can leverage the fact they have this data and start sucking that in as well Right. And that's not to say that they're going to always succeed. I mean, and this is one reason why I have a little bit of a hard time with Yelp's complaints. I mean, at the end of the day, people can still use Tinder. And I actually think Tinder is going to be okay. Like, I, I don't think people think about Facebook and dating and, and want to put them together by and large. Well, I did see some jokes that Facebook will end up being the Tinder for the over 50 year olds or something along those lines. <laughs> but Oh, and like, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, this was so funny about the sort of Yelp thing. They started out as an SEO, basically winning on SEO, but they were, you know, you do you remember when mobile came out and everyone was talking about Google having a problem on mobile? Everyone was worried about that these vertical search engines that could just now be an app on your home screen were going to be a big problem for Google. And Yelp benefited tremendously from going to mobile. I think something like 70% of Yelp views are on mobile. And that's exactly what you need to do. You need to get out of there. You need to get away from the aggregator and build something independent that goes to consumers. And, you know, it's a little <laughs> ironic, I guess, that, you know, Google's, like, what is Google supposed to do on mobile? 
I mean, no one wants to like sympathize with Google, but if you're on mobile and Google is serving 10 blue links and that's a particularly terrible user experience on mobile, like no one follows links on mobile, especially compared to the desktop, is Google just supposed to like take it on the chin? Like that they actually built the service to be more useful and, you know, and more accessible and easy to use for customers in response to a fundamental sort of paradigm shift. Like I have a little bit of a hard time being sort of upset about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, I'm a big fan of Yelp and I am one of the people that have downloaded Yelp and I will use Yelp and I I trust the results more on Yelp. Google is starting to catch up, but like I rely on the results of Yelp more to find stuff. And when I'm looking for a specific kind of business and I'm not sure, I will pull that down. And Yelp is a beneficiary. Like you said, they wouldn't exist without Google and they did the right thing by pulling out. But I'm with you 100%. I think it is a little rich to come back and start complaining in retrospect, oh, Google's actually trying to improve the customer experience. Yeah, well, it's not just that. It's that, you know, Yelp is complaining that Google is populating that answer box with Google's own sort of results and that they're not as good as the results you would get from Yelp. And well, there's a few problems here. One, you know, Google already got in big trouble for scraping content from Yelp. And so- Yelp like, complained. We, right, they did. I mean, I think they would prefer to get paid for it. I, I'm not sure exactly what they want out of it. But at the end of the day, like my issue with these companies and why I think they are a monopoly, why I think Google is a monopoly, I am more sympathetic to like Bing, right? relative to Google. Because at the end of the day, you know, my argument is, and this goes into the sort of data feedback loop that we've talked about and more people using it and making it better, is that Google just has fundamental structural advantages relative to Bing in that Google's by and large, all things being equal, going to have better results than Bing. Like, I think that's just the fundamental nature of the sort of market that they're in, the sort of data that they're dealing with, the sort of technology, and just having more users provides better data, better feedback that gives you better results. Which means, like, there's no way Bing can actually compete with Google in the long run. And so that's why I actually, even though competition is, quote-unquote, a click away, I do think Google has a monopoly in search. The problem I have with the Yelp complaint is their complaint is that we have better answers, and it's not fair they're not using our answers. If you have better answers, then the answer is to do better marketing, better advertising to help people understand that better answers and they should switch to your property. There is nothing structurally stopping people from switching to Yelp. It's like, no, well, Google should be pushing people to our site. Why? Like, are you entitled to that? That's the issue. Like, my Google relative to Bing, Google will always be better. Google relative to Yelp is if Yelp is better, then be better. It's a completely reasonable argument. And the way in, particularly when you frame it in terms of an entitlement type argument, it definitely gets my hackles up. At the same time, I feel like the world is a better place for Yelp being in it. And the idea that there are going to be a bunch of people who start businesses like this, and many of them will fail, but some of them will succeed. And Google then sits in a place where it sees which one of these succeeds. And it's like, oh, this is what people want. We're just going to build it in. And it harkens back a little bit to our conversation around Apple Maps. Like, and this is where Google, <laughs> this is where Google's been on the, the poor end of receiving it. Like Google Maps is a lot better than Apple Maps. Google Maps does not get downloaded because Apple Maps is the default. And I mean, on one hand, I understand you've built the platform. You kind of have a right perhaps to decide which one gets the default, so on and so forth. At the same time, 
the world is a better place for having Yelp in it. And if the outcome of funding these businesses and creating them is it's just an aggregator or whoever it is that sits up top and say, oh, that looks like it's working. We'll just copy that. And because of our position in the market, we'll be able to knock it off or we'll be much more likely to knock it off its perch. Like, I don't know, that's necessarily the best outcome for the world either. I agree. And, and I mean, I think if anything, a good adjustment Yelp made this week is they released a new video that was targeting Google employees saying like, you look, you're supposed to be on the open web. Like you need to link out and make sure that there's a thriving open web out there. It's not just all centralized to Google. And like, I agree with that. And I agree with you sort of philosophically that there needs to be an open web and there needs to be thriving companies that are managing this stuff and all those sorts of things. I have a little bit more of a problem though with it being a sort of like legal prerogative sort of thing. Again, I think the Yelp versus Google one is very instructive. There is nothing structural anywhere that is stopping anyone from going to Yelp or going to Yelp.com or downloading the app. And again, whereas with Bing, I actually think there is something. Is that distinction making sense? I think there is a structural problem there in that the inherent nature of search is that Google is just going to be better. And so anyone could go to Bing, but anyone rational is not going to because Google is going to be better, right? Whereas you can be very rational and thus choose Yelp because it's better, because it has better search results. I mean, it's terrible in Taiwan, I can tell you that, but in the US, I use it in the US for sure. So what's the problem here? I don't know. Am I making sense about that distinction between the two? You're totally making sense. The distinction between once one of these data-driven businesses gets far enough out in front, it's practically impossible to play catch-up. The virtuous circle-type loops just start kicking in. You get better results. It attracts more people. It attracts more advertisers. It lets you invest more to get better results and better engineers and so on, and it becomes impossible to catch up. On that front, it makes total sense. On one hand, I absolutely agree with what you're saying that it's just a case of, well, if you have something that you have built and you feel like it's better than the competition – Go out and just let people know and the market will decide. On the other hand, this almost feels a little bit like it's almost a little bit like a government monopoly in the sense that Google is almost like the government of the free Internet. It has an enormous amount of control, an enormous amount of influence to the point where if Google puts a result in its search box, in that results box, like people are willing to trust it, they start to think, oh, there isn't anything else. If you're someone who's coming of age onto the internet now, you probably haven't heard of Yelp. And on one hand, you have Google that's building a business like this and they're able to take advantage of all those eyeballs. On the other hand, for Yelp to compete, you then have to go to the effort of buying Google ads or buying banners or whatever it is. And if you do have something better, it is still hard to compete to get those eyeballs in the first place, just given the position that Google has put itself, not put itself in, position that Google has managed to earn. Yeah, and I think that's, I think one of the best responses to the argument I put forward. You know, what is the best channel for Yelp to advertise and to sort of like let people know that Yelp exists and something they should use? It's Google, right? There's such an inherent conflict of interest there. You know, at the same time, I'm still just a little hung up on the only response that would really satisfy Yelp and these other companies is that Google should be 10 blue links forever. I mean, should they be 10 blue links forever? That's what they say. They say they want to have the answer box and they want Google to use organic results to populate that box. And then they want the results 
results to be very clickable so that it's easy to get to the third-party sites. And again, it's, it's not just a self-interested argument. I mean, obviously, Yelp benefits from people being on their sites because they're an advertising company. But also, I think a big thing that's underappreciated is you know Yelp runs on user-generated content and TripAdvisor and, and the other sort of companies that are in a similar boat. And if people aren't on the site, they're not writing content. It's more important on the desktop, I think, than in mobile because people are more likely to write reviews on the desktop when they're sitting in front of a keyboard and all that sort of thing. And you know, I think the real threat to them in the long run is not necessarily people not visiting the site. It's that their content starts to dry up because they're not getting sort of like that fresh input because people are just writing the reviews on Google or they're just putting it on the results that are in front of them. And again, I think there's a, you know, this is why I do think it is at least worthwhile to sort of appeal to Google's better angels, their nature, as it were, that they're choking off the web. They're not pushing people out there to generate the sort of fauna that makes Google so valuable. I have a little harder time getting over the hump when it comes to sort of the legal argument. Well, yeah. And I mean, if you play it out in a non-legal argument in a way where let's assume Google does want to improve the results that the web, like the search box, like it's improve its results such that maybe it decides, okay, if someone's searching for hotels, let's imagine it pulls from TripAdvisor and then puts it in that box. Like, how are they going to determine who gets paid? Or if you pull it from Yelp, how are they going to determine who gets what the value of that is? And like Yelp sets the price or and then it becomes this thing where if Yelp sets an outrageous price and Google doesn't feel like there are any other results is is like Google just not going to innovate. It becomes a tricky thing when you get down to it. Google tried to buy Yelp and I think it didn't go through and this speaks to it. It's like that is kind of playing out how maybe it could have happened. It comes down to price and if the price that the company that wants these results put, whether it's via API or whether Google acquiring the company, if the price set is too high then all you're doing is incentivizing Google to use its position to go create it itself. On the other hand Google knows it has that position so it has a very good BATNA in negotiation terms, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So its incentive is to lowball because it knows if it doesn't get a good price, it can just use its position to take a crack at recreating what that company's already done. I don't want to get hung up on this too long just because, but I think the broader point to take away from this is this black hole sort of aspect. You know what I mean? Like the thing with an aggregator is it's a great place to be in to build a platform when the aggregator is like in full growth mode, right? And they're so busy just like keeping up with their, the user scaling and they're the sort of low hanging fruit that if you jump on top and provide additional functionality or additional content like Yelp did back when Yelp started, right? I mean, Yelp made Google's results better because if someone searched for best restaurant in San Francisco, Google could just link to a Yelp page and like Yelp was like taking care of that problem, taking care of it off of Google's hands and Google could focus on all the other things that Google needed to focus on at that point, right? The problem though, in the long run, it's an inherently unstable place to be. And the reason it's inherently unstable is because at some point, all that low hanging fruit will be picked. And if you built your business on sort of a mid-tier branch, guess what? The ax is going to come out at some point, right? Exactly. And this is where this is so fundamentally different from a platform, right? The goal of a platform is not to be fundamentally unstable or to be like this sort of vortex that's sucking things in. Ideally, a platform succeeds. It gets stronger over time. It ossifies over time. If anything, this is the danger point for the platform maker is they get so 
locked into the ecosystem and backwards compatibility and making sure everything works together and bending over backwards to draw these connections and making sure it all works, that it builds this like impenetrable fortress that no one can break into. And for them, they can't break out of, right? For better or worse, which is what happened to Microsoft. But if you think about that, the idea of Microsoft getting ossified into this fortress, you know what? Fortresses are fantastic places to build a business because you're protected and it's in the interest of everyone involved. You know, if you have a city with a big castle and a big wall around it, bring in more merchants, build big buildings, do all this sort of stuff. We'll protect you. You'll provide us goods and services. It's all a win-win for everyone. And that's a much better place to build a business than across the river on quicksand. Yeah. And it's interesting because you compare Microsoft's approach with Apple's, which has a little bit more of this aggregator type feel to it where like things are a lot more controlled it's not the bizarre where anything goes that perhaps was more reflective of what it was like in the microsoft city so to speak and it's interesting because apple will occasionally decide to pick off a developer and it's like oh i like what that app is doing i'm going to either sometimes buy it but sometimes we're just going to replicate it in-house and that merchant is then in serious trouble Well, I think there's kind of a broader lesson here about, you know, sort of centralized markets versus open markets, where in the short run, the Apple, everyone remember, there was the whole thing, particularly after first open. Oh, so much better. You talked about a few minutes ago, people feel safe downloading apps and doing all these sorts of things. And it was a great place to be. But once all the sort of low hanging fruit was picked, what's left is like stagnation. You know, like there are no great companies. There are no big entities that are being built on the app store. Like the apps, like there are lots of big companies building apps, but they're sort of tangential and a part of a completely different sort of business opportunity. You don't have the sort of big companies that are being built on top. And, you know, it's like there's always that trade-off, right? There's always benefits to having more control. There are always benefits to having a walled garden. But that doesn't mean it's all upside. There, Everything is a trade-off, right? If you want to control everything, you're going to limit the downside risk. But inherent in that is the limitation of upside risk is what could be done what could be built and i mean like again that comes back to the biggest criticism of the app store and like apple's approach to building a platform like yes it's very safe and friendly but you've got developers forming unions to try to get apple to like just take your clutches off us just a little bit more like let us do a few other things because we can't build sustainable businesses in things other than games or it makes it that much harder if you don't give us these other opportunities to try different approaches right absolutely and you know the companies that are building super large and meaningful apps on the app store are building it because it's a, some other service and it's a delivery vehicle, right? It's a way to get there. The, another example is think about Facebook. Facebook's just sucking everything in. You talk about the weather.com example. What are all the success stories in sort of journalism? Like the successes or publishing generally. None of these successes are about, oh, we figure out a way to harvest a bunch of traffic and then serve ads against it, right? All the successes are subscriptions. And why are subscriptions meaningful? Because subscriptions are a direct connection with the customer. They are an example of if you want to succeed, your business model has to avoid, has to go away from these black holes. And you see that with all the interesting companies these days are all the ones that are involved in transactions, whether it's Airbnb, whether it's Uber, whether it's all these scooter companies, whatever it might be, they're building direct connections with customers. Now, again, Facebook can aid in that through Facebook ads and it it could be available use, but that's using Facebook as a tool. 
It's not using Facebook as a platform. And if you start out not integrating over the top of that relationship and the financial relationship with the customer, then you better figure out a way to get there. Otherwise, like you're going to end up in a position complaining like these companies are. And a really interesting piece of news that kind of gets to this point is Amazon stopped buying ads on Google Shopping. They still buy search ads, but where they show, like if you search for sneakers and they show a bunch of shoes at the top, that was the subject of the EU antitrust thing. They stopped. And you think, why did they stop? Because 50% of product searches start on Amazon. Like you're not going to win in the long run by being stuck in the black hole. You win by having that sort of direct connection. You say, oh, well, that's fine for Amazon. Well, I mean, it wasn't always fine for Amazon. They've been relentlessly focused on owning that customer relationship. We talked this in the context of the convenience stores, why I don't think they're going to just license out the technology because everything Amazon does is about maintaining that connection. You know, Amazon, well, a long time ago, they had a service where you could basically use the Amazon storefront infrastructure to have your own site. It was all powered by Amazon. And they got out of that business because yes, they want to be an infrastructure provider in the sense of AWS, but they don't want to give away the end user relationship to anyone else when it comes to the consumer side of things. Yeah, that has the hallmarks of a company or an entity starting out and doing whatever it takes to make it. But once they start getting a little bit down the path, realizing the importance of that relationship and cutting that off, and it makes total sense why they did. And you look at where they are now and what they've managed to establish with Prime, there's no way they would let anybody in like that again. So the other thing that's, I think, really interesting and important, and I mentioned sort of the regulatory perspective, is this is something I've kind of changed my mind on. A year ago in Manifestos of Monopolies, I wrote that, you know, one of the solutions to Facebook ought to be, you know, data portability and sort of interoperability and, you know, exporting the social graph and whatnot. And I kind of mentioned in passing here, and some people were like, what? <laughs> that I actually now think that's a terrible mistake. Like, enforce sort of interoperability and data portability is a bad thing. And the reason why is, you know, you go back to the world of Microsoft and that's sort of like the framework everyone thinks about these issues in. And the issue there, again, they were a platform that were facilitating this relationship, right? They were kind of building an iron triangle between developers, Microsoft, and users. And that was the strength of their entire sort of ecosystem. And the point was you need to bring in interoperability into that system so others can break into that iron triangle. And they're not going to open the triangle themselves. We need to open it up from a sort of antitrust perspective and a remedy perspective. And it was effective too, right? Like you think about it in terms of like the two things that I think about was the browser, like allow other browsers to start and stop embracing and extending standards on the web, but also a networking standard such that other non-Windows computers could interact with Windows networks, which were absolutely dominant at the time. It, well, it's interesting that you put it that way because I think the interaction with Windows networks was definitely came out of the remedy there. And I think the ideas behind the remedies were pretty sound, but you know, Microsoft was able to muddy it up and drag their feet. And it probably had some effect, but I think it was kind of the accidental interoperability of the web that really broke sort of Microsoft's hold on things because you know, Microsoft, we've talked about this before, they were locked onto the API level, like the browser interacting with the operating system and thought that'd be a new sort of runtime. And what it turned out was it was information that really mattered on the web and the API that mattered 
was links, right? I mean, I'm gratuitously stretching the definition here, but the interoperability between pages is what actually mattered on the web. And that's why Google came along and kind of owned that. It was built on that. And it was just a completely different space than Microsoft sort of realized or targeted. And this is why I'm not sold by arguments that antitrust against Microsoft allowed Google to come along. Google came along in a place that Microsoft didn't even visualize or really understand or get or was ever in a place to build. And oh, by the way, you know, Antitrust has nothing to do with Microsoft failing in mobile, right? Like there's – you can't credit it for everything. You know, actually, let me go down that. The whole reason why the Microsoft platform was such an effective and profitable place to be is because it was an iron triangle, right? It was like a fortress that was all built together and it wasn't going anywhere. And, and the more people that were on there and the more powerful and the more rich that it was, the better it was for Microsoft. And that's why it was a great place to be as a developer and why they sort of wanted to break into it. But on the web, it's so different because it's all happening. This black hole effect we talked about where the aggregators in the middle just sucking everything in, sucking everything in. Everyone is going in of their own volition. And in the long run, it becomes so powerful that it can start expanding out and building things in. Well, you don't want interoperability with that. You want to be separate from that. You want to be Amazon that has a direct connection with customers. You want to be Facebook with a direct connection with customers. You want to be publishers that are doing subscriptions that are getting money directly from customers and not relying on Facebook. To succeed in a world of aggregators is to run away from the aggregator as far as you can and connect with customers directly. It's the exact opposite what you want in a platform where to succeed, you want to get on top or break into the platform. This is why it's so important to understand the difference because what you do as a competitor is different and what regulators need to be concerned about is different. Just going back to what you were saying about Microsoft, I think for the most part, I agree with you. There is an extent to which I remember being on a Mac at the time and the number of things that were telling me that if I didn't have Internet Explorer, it wouldn't work. And some of that was just like developers not wanting to have to test on multiple platforms. But there was also some extent to which they had created things that only worked on Windows and that started to change things. But for the most part, I agree. Casting that aside, what's interesting about what you just said, though, is, okay, I think a lot of people have put interoperability at the heart of the problem that we need to solve with Facebook and its dominant position. And if you solve the interoperability problem, you solve the Facebook problem and people are able to compete. It sounds like you're not there. I was there. It's not that I'm not there. It's that I was there and I departed. (laughs) You're not there anymore. And I know that over the course of 150-something episodes, you've played anti-regulation, I've played pro-regulation, we've probably danced around each other, sometimes convinced one another, but probably still lie relatively on those sides of the fences. But are you coming around to the point of view then that there isn't anything from a regulatory point of view that we should do about the aggregators? Well, let's back up. I think the one thing that I believe I've always believed, have written articles about, and actually now believe even more than ever, is this point about acquisitions. The way that acquisitions are reviewed have to be dramatically overhauled to not allow one company with network effects to buy another company with network effects. And this gets at why, because that is what strengthens the aggregator. That's what gives them, it's like supercharging. Like if you want to combine two black holes, you get a really big black hole. You know what I mean? And so I absolutely believe that. I believe that more than ever. I think that is, and I think there's so much regulatory fruit to come there to really develop the theory and the thinking about, you know, without any sort of graph. Yeah, so it cuts both ways. I mean, for sure, Instagram benefited hugely from being a part of Facebook. No question. Not just on the advertising side, but also on the user acquisition side. I mean, 
how many users did they have when Facebook acquired them? It was relatively small. It was like 30 million. Yeah. And so you can understand why this index, right? This Herfordell Hirschman index, it doesn't really, 30 million compared is nothing, right? It doesn't really matter. So yeah, I think that's a huge area of focus. And we need new tools. Like regulators need new tools to measure this sort of space. But that's where I would put my focus. I would not go into that interoperability side of things because we're dealing with black holes. They suck everything in. The key to success is avoiding that black hole and to have an enforced connection. Again, you can theoretically think about it as I did, and I'm throwing myself in this boat. You come at it, you have this framework of the Microsoft, all this sort of stuff and interoperability and and trying to break in like, oh yeah, they should have data portability. And you forget that these are fundamentally different markets. Aggregators are not platforms. They are black holes. They're not sturdy structures. And you are enforced portability goes both ways. If data flows one way, it flows back the other. And in the long run, it's sort of like taking that search idea where Google being bigger, they get the greater feedback loop and it just increases their lead. And it's sort of like federalizing it across a whole bunch of networks. I mean, that was the benefits Facebook got from their mistake that we've talked about in the context of Cambridge Analytica scandal to share all this data. They were sharing data and they're getting data right back in. And if you have a central player that is doing these data exchanges with everyone else in the ecosystem, who wins in the end? The central player. So I'm with you in terms of it would be very difficult to not be with you in terms of like, okay, let's get smarter about how we approach this going forward. That being said, we have this black hole that's two black holes, that's three black holes. It's a very big black hole. I take your point about the data portability and these broad regulations. And this is definitely one of the places where I've evolved as a result of all our conversations over the past, whatever number of episodes it is. And your point around GDPR, like it's certainly come to pass. That being said, this is a company that is a triple black hole. There is nowhere else that has anywhere near as much insight on the relationships that human beings have between each other. Like, is there... From a regulatory perspective, you'd just be like, hands off, it's done, the ship has sailed, there's nothing more that can be done? Well, the weird thing about Facebook is that the remedy for Facebook is obvious, which is split off Instagram and WhatsApp. The question is, like, what's the Casabelli? Like, on what aspect is Facebook actually a monopoly? Like, there really isn't one. I mean, like, advertising? Well, advertising, they're a duopoly with Google and they're adopted with Google in digital advertising, which there's a whole bunch of other kinds of advertising. Like the definitions get very fuzzy. And also there's no evidence that they actually have measurable in a way that would drive a antitrust action power over the advertising market because the supply is increasing, right? A important measure is supply increasing or decreasing and supply is increasing in the market as a whole. So like, it's weird, like there's a remedy, but like, how do we get to the remedy? Yeah, I mean, I think this speaks to the point you just made around like, okay, we need to update the way we think about the acquisitions. And if you do the hard work of getting to the basis of understanding how the acquisitions get done, then you start to have new definitions of what a monopoly looks like in a network effects era. And then you could start to make a case, I guess, at that point. Yeah, and that's why I've said, I think to the extent there is regulatory action, and this is why maybe we will end up with more GDPR type laws that are focused on my whole point with them is that they lock in Google and Facebook and they lock them in, you know, not just because they can afford all the lawyers and stuff to deal with it, but also, you know, the relative pain, Google and Facebook will feel pain from this. They will, but the relative pain compared to everyone else is much lower. And maybe 
because of the regulatory mistake when it came to these acquisitions, there will end up being more of sort of utility type sort of regulation where, okay, you're locked in with all this stuff and you're going to have much more of these shackles put on you. You know, again, that's kind of a shame because it's sort of giving up, right? It's There's not going to be competition there. And it's certainly, though, a position and an argument that could be had. The one other thing that I think about, and I, it's in the context of seeing how Facebook supercharged Instagram, and this is quite apart from the advertising side, was just because of the extent to which they had access to the graph. And I know many, many moons ago, many episodes ago, we talked about this idea of, I wonder if there's a way of splitting it such that you pull apart Facebook's integration over the graph into things like newsfeed and future things like dating and whatever, and make that graph available to other uses? And would you see more things like Snapchat rise up? Like we don't even have the basis for a cut like that as we were just discussing, let alone the logistics of pulling apart an organization in such a way like that would be tremendously difficult. Yeah. Again, there's a total allure to like this graph should be available to everyone. But I mean, the phone book is a graph. Like you kind of know who your contacts are by and large. I guess I'll put it this way. I don't think that the lack of access to the Facebook graph is as strong of a limitation to like effective company formation that everyone kind of wants to think that it is. You know what I mean? I think it's a very sort of tempting argument, but there's so much that goes into building. If you had access to the Facebook graph tomorrow, like full access, you're not going to suddenly build Facebook, right? I mean, there's... You know, I guess your point is you want to separate that from like the actual utility and product and stuff like that, which is, you know, far more radical than breaking off the other ones. Again, how do we get from here to there? And two, right. I would prefer to avoid radicalness. You know, I think that's the allure of the sort of Instagram WhatsApp sort of angle, although, you know, over time that goes away. What you do see is the vast majority of companies that are being built now, even to the extent they are aggregators, they are building on different business models. Like you're just not seeing consumer-based advertising companies, I think, are going to be a hot space very much anymore, for better or worse. You see companies like Uber or Airbnb or these scooter companies or whatever it might be that are actually charging for stuff. And they're taking a skim off of transactions. And that is a model where Facebook and the social graph would be a useful tool because you could reach more people and market more effectively. But you do have access to that, right? You just have to pay for it. You pay for it in the form of advertising. And you already see a sort of response to the reality on the ground. Yeah. The thing that I found most interesting in this discussion is that I've always thought that like, if you make the graph freely available, this would solve all the problems. And this idea that maybe that's not it. And if it's not it, then how else do you think about it? That's a really interesting one, and I suspect we might have future conversations around it as well. Yeah, indeed. And I think I mentioned this a couple of podcasts ago, but I remember I was at that antitrust conference, and it was about digital platforms. And within the first 10 minutes, it like dawned on me that everyone here, it's all these like economist professors and, and lawyers and other you know different people, everyone is coming at this with this Microsoft viewpoint, right? There are lots of people there that were in that case and things like that, and they're in current cases about Google and whatever. And it's like, it's not really applicable to Google and Facebook at all. And it makes sense. My argument about aggregation theory being fundamentally nailed by the internet, by zero transaction costs and zero marginal costs and this sort of infinite scalability. It's that infinite scalability that drives the sort of black hole nature of these companies. Again, network effects are not a new idea, but I think this aspect of this scalability is, you know, the Microsoft 
ecosystem could scale infinitely, but Microsoft itself couldn't scale infinitely, right? They needed the third-party platform to serve all the needs of its users. And that's the difference with like Google and Facebook. When it comes to information, it is limitless. You could spend all day on Facebook. The whole point of the newsfeed is there's way too much possible things that they could show you and they have to choose what to show you. The point of Google is there's so many sites out there, you need a way to filter and figure out what is there. And that idea that they are taking more and constricting it so it's actually usable, it speaks to the infinite scalability of these entities in a way that's very different from a developer platform where you always need more. You always need more apps because there's so many human use cases. Right. And it requires an act on the part of the developer to opt in to create it as opposed to there's no supply side opt in in either of these instances. There's just the fact there's demand there and they're either pulling in commoditized or I mean, they are both are pulling in commoditized supply. And then there are instances where the demand is creating the supply as well in the instance of Facebook, which is, yeah, it hasn't happened up until now. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> next time we talk, I think we'll be after WWC. So we will be probably talking about Apple, something different. I know we spent a lot of time on this, but I felt a little sheepish writing about this again this week. But to me, just having, I think, clarity on this point is really, really important because it affects everyone. Like it affects the companies themselves. Like we talked about Facebook, right? Their big mistake was thinking they were a platform when they were actually an aggregator and they made poor decisions that are coming back to bite them in the rear end now. So it matters for them. It matters for third parties. Like how should you think about building on these different platforms? How should you think about partnering with them? How should you think about interoperating with them? There's lots of short-term gains to be had because of the big user bases, but boy, it can really, really come to bite you in the long run, right? And it matters for regulators. Like how should you think about these platforms? Like what should our focus be? And again, I think this first off, Merged acquisitions. Second off, to your point, some sort of breakup is like a better remedy than interoperability, right? Interoperability is actually the worst thing that you can have in these situations because you're just actually strengthening the black hole. And that's a sort of a twist in thinking that I think is important. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So I just thought about the Microsoft thing, right? The remedy to break up Microsoft and Office, I think, was always a mistaken one. The more useful remedy was the interoperability one, right? It was the opposite case, right? The structural remedy that made sense for Microsoft was increased operability. The structural remedy that would make sense for Facebook would be a breakup. And I think that gets at why they are different companies. Anyhow, so again, I will not talk to you next week. As I mentioned, we'll be back the week of WWDC where we will talk about Apple. And I have a suspicion we might talk a little bit more about the App Store. We'll see what happens. Go to wordpress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's wordpress.com slash exponent. And I will talk to you in two weeks. Sounds good, mate. Speak to you then. Bye-bye.